Waiting for a cyber Pearl Harbor today, Thursday, January 31st. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Pentagon nominee Chuck Hagel gets grilled by fellow Republicans at his nomination hearing. Vietnam vet and writer Tim O'Brien defends Hagel's reputation for caution. What else should you be cautious about if not killing people and not having your own people die? Also today, Chinese hackers reportedly go after the New York Times. We'll hear what they did and how it was uncovered. And later, an arts festival outing turns out to be a life-changing experiment. I thought it was going to be a cool thing to do, walk around blindfolded, feel the vulnerability of it all, but I didn't realize how it would affect me on so many different levels. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Today on the program, we're looking at wars, past, present, and possibly future. We start with former Republican Senator Chuck Hagel, the nominee to head the Pentagon. He faced intense questioning in Senate confirmation hearings today. Senator John McCain grilled him on his opposition to the troop surge in Iraq. Critics say they're worried Hagel might be reluctant to use U.S. military force, and he tried to dispel that today when he dealt with the issue of Iran getting nuclear weapons. And as I've said in the past many times. All options must be on the table to achieve that goal. My policy has always been the same as the president's, one of prevention, not of containment. Earlier this week, former Senator John Kerry was confirmed as Secretary of State, and if Hagel's confirmed, it would be the first time two Vietnam vets hold two top cabinet positions. Author and Vietnam vet Tim O'Brien has written a lot about the Vietnam War, including the classic, The Things They Carried. I asked him about the lingering impact of the conflict on Kerry and Hegel. Aging and uh, positions of power can influence uh, a psyche as much as a, an experience such as Vietnam. But uh, in Hegel's case, for example, he was not only in Vietnam, he was in Vietnam as a, as a sergeant, an enlisted man. And uh, both men, both Kerry and Hagel, saw combat. And I think you return from an experience like that with the knowledge that bullets and bombs and artillery shells and so on can kill the enemy. But bombs and artillery shells and bullets can also manufacture an enemy. A bullet strikes a six-year-old kid in the head. You've got one very angry mom and dad. The multiplier effect is enormous. It can be counterproductive, not achieving the goals you want, but instead manufacturing problems. Do you think for both Hegel and Kerry, they're likely to be more cautious in the use of force, or is it just too simplistic? Well, I hope that they would be more cautious as a consequence of their experiences in Vietnam. I mean, what's wrong with caution? It's, it astonishes me that Hegel's being criticized for possibly becoming too cautious. There are dead people. It's not an abstract issue for someone who's been in combat. It may be abstract to civilians and to officers back in the rear echelon area, but to someone who's had to carry your dead friends and look at the dead enemy soldiers, 
uh, it's not an abstract issue. It's uh, an issue that goes into your bones, and I hope it's gone into the bones of Mr. Uh, Hagel and Mr. Carey. It was interesting to hear uh, Chuck Hagel's narrative today uh, during his confirmation hearings. Uh, we were reminded of his family's almost, you know, kind of destiny to serve in the military. His father was in World War II, grandfather in World War One. There he was in Vietnam, two Purple Hearts, shrapnel in his chest, uh, a war hero. How did it affect him personally? I mean, maybe you have an anecdote that is worth mentioning. It affected him the way it affected all of us in the last analysis, that war is hell, and it's ugly, and it's nasty. The images of heroism are, you know, now and then true, but there's the overwhelming temper of war is ugly and nasty on a day-by-day, second-by-second basis, kicking around civilians, peeing in wells, busting into people's houses, rolling in with your armor, intimidating people. It's ugly, not just in the sense of atrocity, it's ugly in its daily second-by-second ethos. Tim O'Brien, you served as an infantryman in Vietnam. When did the ground shift for you and kind of change your essential notions of war? Uh, it shifted on a hot day in 1969, it was July, and we had taken two casualties earlier in the day. We entered a village. The middle of this village was a, a village well, and at the well stood up an old man, 70, 80 years old, he was completely blind. His eyes looked like little aluminum discs. And for the, about a half an hour, that old man dipped into his well with a wooden bucket and gave us showers, dumping the water on us and saying, good water for good GIs. It could have been a pigeon English. Mm. And at one point, one of my fellow soldiers, a kid named Tom from my home state of Minnesota, picked up a little carton of milk and from two or maybe three feet away, hurled that carton of milk at the old man's head, hit him in the face. The man lost his balance, fell down. After a moment, he stood up, milk just dribbling down his, down his face, little cut over his eye. The village had gone silent. All the kids who had been giggling a little bit before were dead silent. That village, that old man, that moment, lasts inside me, even though there was no real bloodshed, in a way that will never go away. What was it about that moment? Was it the random cruelty of it? It was the inexplicability of it, the question of why. Why would a man do this? Granted, we had lost two men earlier in the day. Granted, we were feeling full of anger and sorrow. But still, that old man had nothing to do with it. And it's an example of what I meant when I said a bit earlier that war can have the effects that are precisely the reverse of your intentions to save a world for democracy, to win the hearts and minds of villagers. Tim O'Brien, do you as a Vietnam veteran feel more encouraged that two Vietnam veterans will likely be secretaries of defense and state? Does that make a difference to you? Yes, a huge difference. I've had an experience face-to-face as I did with the horrors of war, its sinfulness and nastiness. And when uh, one of these men is being criticized as possibly too cautious, I want to yell at the top of my lungs, how can one be too cautious? You can't be too cautious. Tim O'Brien, author of the Vietnam-era classic, The Things They Carried, he now lives and works in Central Texas, where he teaches at Texas State University, San Marcos. Very good to hear your thoughts, Tim O'Brien.
Thank you, Marco. President Obama has at times been accused of being too cautious, notably in the fight against radical Islamists. France decided earlier this month to intervene against Islamic extremists in its former colony, Mali. Militants had taken over much of the West African country and were threatening the capital. French troops now appear to have driven the militants out, and Malians who were living under the extremist rule say it was a harsh, violent existence. The CBC's Laura Lynch reports from the capital, Bamako. There are nothing but smiles on the faces of the dozen children spilling out of a small apartment in Bamako. The cramped quarters with five adults, there are 17 in all, are better than what they left behind when they escaped the city of Gao last spring. Mohammed Ibrahim Yatara, father to six of the children, says it was a frightening time. When you see people coming, uh, shutting gunfires in front of your house or threatening you with a gun, in front of your children, uh, in front of your wife, I think that's uh, a very scary thing. First, Yatara says Tuareg rebels came, then Islamist militants. Being Christians, he and his family felt like targets, especially when their church was destroyed. He says that was just the beginning. Drastically, life has changed. Because, uh, I mean, when they looted the city, there was no bank, no market, I mean, I mean nothing. Today, though, he's smiling at the news that the last stronghold of the militants, Kidal, appears to have fallen. Yatara thinks the war is all but won and his country is saved. Uh, we think we'll have uh, years, uh, centuries of uh, security and peace. Others, though, including the fighters themselves, insist this is just a pause. Analysts suggest this may evolve into a guerrilla war with smaller-scale irregular attacks, similar to Afghanistan. In a nearby house where Mohammed Agsabu lives with his and three other families, there's not much talk of a lasting peace. He is from Timbuktu and fled when Islamist fighters evicted him from his house. Realistically, the military will have to stay there for a long time, he says, to strengthen security and prevent revenge attacks. There are still lots of Islamists in the cities, in the mountains, in the desert. And then there are those who cannot contemplate ever trying to find a peace pact with those who invaded their cities and their lives. At this busy bus station, Suleiman Traore stands out, wearing a heavy gray jacket with long sleeves in the intense heat of Bamako's midday sun. He wears it for one sad reason. Why? It's to stop me from seeing that my hand isn't there anymore, he says. Traore was caught by militants last fall in Gao, accused of stealing their weapons. For that, they cut off his right hand. He rolls up his sleeves to show the stump and pronounces what he thinks should happen to the fighters who are now retreating under fire. The best way to deal with them isn't to kill them, he says. I think they should be mutilated too, so they'll know the pain and the difficulties of living this way. Perhaps the biggest clue to how these refugees really feel about the swift military victories in the north lies in their plans for the future. They don't want to return home just yet. They are waiting and watching, not certain what will come next. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in Bamako, Mali. There was drama this week at pretrial hearings at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four co-defendants are facing charges there of plotting the attacks of September 11, 2001. On Monday, the audio feed from the hearings was abruptly silenced. Today, the judge reprimanded government censors for cutting the sound without his consent. He also released a transcript of what was censored. Arun Roth is in Guantanamo covering the hearings for the world and frontline. What happened on Monday, Arun? Explain. 
Yeah, it was it was a bizarre day, Marco. And you you could say every day down here is is bizarre, but some are certainly more bizarre than others. What happened was uh, that one of the defense lawyers was reading a motion, and again, like you said, the audio abruptly cut out. Now there's a 40 second delay coming from the courtroom to prevent any spillage of classified information. Even if you're there in the gallery in the courtroom, you, what you what you're hearing is 40 seconds after what you're actually seeing. And it's it's happened a couple of times before where they've cut it out, where something sensitive came up and the feed cut out. What was very odd on Monday was that when we came back from that break, from that interruption, the judge had no idea who had pushed the button. There's a court security officer who sits to his right, who is the one supposedly with his finger on the button, but apparently he looked as confused as anybody about what had happened. And the judge was visibly angry about it. He wanted to know, you know, what had happened. And the odd thing at that point was the people who seemed to be in the know were the prosecution. And the prosecution lawyer said that she would explain it to him in an off-the-record conference. So today, uh, the judge uh, reprimanded government censors for cutting the sound, uh, as we mentioned earlier. Does that mean the judge believes the government actually did this, or is it still kind of a mystery? No, I mean, we, we know that there was an external authority who they're not clear about. They're calling it an original classification authority. Most people take that to mean the CIA, because what they were talking about were the black sites. That's when the uh, the censor button was engaged, even though what was talked about was actually not sensitive at all. The lawyer was just reading the title of his motion. Very confusing indeed. I mean, how are people kind of feeling about this during these hearings right now? Well, it's a very unsettled uh, sense. Uh, the judge today, uh, like you said, he ordered that uh, the the sensor, the external sensor, cease doing what they're doing. But they're uh, they're still there. They're still monitoring whoever is the, this uh, external authority, and that's caused a lot of concern among the defense lawyers who have now this morning filed an emergency motion to cease the proceedings until they can find out who is monitoring them and where they're being monitored. Because obviously that's a big deal for attorney-client communications. They need to have those in private. Um, but they want to know, you know, they're being recorded in court. Are they being recorded when they meet with their clients in Guantanamo? And who is doing the listening? So that's going to come up before the court again uh, when we reconvene in February before anything else can really happen. Arun Roth, who's at Guantanamo Bay covering the ongoing military hearings for the world and frontline. We have Arun's latest blog post from Guantanamo at theworld.org. Arun, thank you very much. Thanks, Marco. Still ahead, you won't need eyes where we're going in the GeoQuiz today on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Officials in Mexico City unveiled some rare good news about the city's water supply last week. They announced that they discovered a new aquifer deep under the Mexican capital. They hope it'll solve some of the city's notorious water problems. But tapping that underground reservoir will take many years and tens of millions of dollars at least. So meanwhile, many of the city's 21 million residents are looking in another direction for a more immediate solution, not down, but up. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program Nova has a story. The Ajusco district at the southern edge of Mexico City is part of Mexico's surging capital, but you'd never know it. Aside from the occasional car or motorbike on a dirt road, the only sound is a radio playing somewhere in the neighborhood. And there's another less obvious sign of Ajusco's isolation from the rest of the metropolis. Most homes here have at best only intermittent access to the city water system. 
pues no tenía nada de agua. Eusebia Santa Ana Gutierrez says that for most of the time she's lived here, she worried about water. Service was erratic, Gutierrez says. Sometimes it got so bad, she'd have to visit friends or family in the city center to wash her clothes or take a shower. Gutierrez's situation is typical of tens of thousands of people here on the outskirts of Mexico City. But even in the more developed urban areas, roughly 30 percent of the city's residents have sporadic access to water. That's millions of people. The main problem is that the aquifer beneath the city is being depleted. And that's where Enrique Lomnitz comes in. As the water situation gets worse and worse, our proposal gets stronger and stronger. Lomnitz is the director of Isla Urbana, a local environmental group that's pushing what it says is a simple solution to at least part of Mexico City's water crisis, rainwater harvesting. Lomnitz says it's a natural fit in Mexico City, since over a million homes already have tanks or cisterns for storing water. So you put a rainwater harvesting system into this house, and it's not a novel concept for a family to have a whole bunch of water come into their cistern at once and then use that water so that it lasts as long as possible. This is something that people are very used to doing. Lomnit says water from the rainy season can supply a household for up to six months. And with tanks already in place, he says Isla Urbana's system is quick and easy to install. Some new gutters, some plumbing, and a couple of special filters. That's it, Lomnit says, all for no more than 600 bucks per house. He and his team have already installed close to 1,000 systems in Mexico City. But not everyone's convinced of the benefits. Victor Carrillo lights a blowtorch in his workshop to weld two copper pipes together. He used to be a bus driver, but now he works for Isla Urbana, training plumbers to install rainwater systems. He says it's often a tough sell. Lo que encontramos muchas veces es un poco de burla. Carrillo says plumbers sometimes make fun of the program. They don't understand the culture of rainwater harvesting. Lo que es la captación de lluvia. But after the training, he says that most of the plumbers eventually see the benefits. Not so, however, for city officials. No es una solución. It's not a solution, says Ramona Aguirre Diaz, the director general of Mexico City's water system. It sounds intelligent, he says, but that's it. It just sounds good. Aguirre Diaz says the cost and the extra technology put rainwater harvesting out of reach of the vast majority of Mexico City's homes. And he says the problem this giant city has with its water can't be fixed with a single approach. They'll need to rely on many ideas. Ideas like reducing demand and increasing water reuse, fixing leaky water mains, and bringing more water in from outside the city. Enrique Lomnitz and his colleagues at Isla Urbana agree that rainwater harvesting isn't going to fix Mexico City's water problems entirely. But he believes it has much greater potential than the city gives it credit for. And he says their approach is already making a big difference for people who've installed their systems. Eusebia Santa Ana Gutierrez, on the outskirts of the city, is one of them. Isla Urbana helped install a rainwater harvesting system in her home last year. Fifteen of her neighbors have done the same. 
Gutierrez casts a bucket down into her water tank, still half-filled even though it's been two months since the last rain. She can see her reflection in the water below. She shows off the water she uses to wash her clothes and her dishes. She even drinks it, even though Isla Urbana doesn't advise it. She says it's crystal clear, this water that came from the sky. Gutierrez is relieved that she hasn't had to worry about her water for the past few months. She also says she's saving enough money from not having to buy water to build a little extension onto her home. Once it's complete, she plans to collect even more rainwater from her expanded roof. She's proud of her setup, here on this dirt road at the edge of Mexico City. The name of that road, by the way, it's Tlaloc, the Aztec god of rain. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Mexico City. We've got pictures of Eusebia Santa Ana and her rainwater harvesting system at theworld.org. And you can catch Nova's new two-hour special, Earth from Space, premiering in February on PBS. If you want to collect rainwater, you might head to the location of today's GeoQuiz. It's a part of the world known for its rainforests, mountains, and gorgeous views of the Pacific Ocean. The city has hosted a World Expo and a Winter Olympics. It often ranks high as one of the best places in the world to live. The city has a vibrant art scene. Right now it's hosting the PUSH International Performing Arts Festival. And for your last clue, well, you'll have to close your eyes for this one. We'll be back with the answer later in the show. You may remember last week we reported on rising corruption in Spain. Reporter Jerry Haddon mentioned allegations that top members of the ruling Popular Party had received envelopes stuffed with cash. Well, today, a leading Spanish newspaper, El País, featured what it says is evidence of the payoffs. El País displayed photographs from a handwritten ledger kept by two former party treasurers. One of the names in the ledger is apparently Spain's current prime minister, Mariano Rajoy. According to the ledger, he was paid about $32,000 a year under the table for 11 years up until 2008. But popular party leaders deny allegations of a secret slush fund repeatedly. That's a montage of party denial put together by newspaper El País. Party leaders say all payments have been legal and in compliance with tax obligations. The world's Jerry Haddon has more on this developing story in his blog post. You can find it at theworld.org. News headlines are coming up on PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was made possible by the Candida Fund. Ahead on the world, an American with Caribbean ties talks about singing jazz in France. In France, I used to be told, well, since you're black and you're American, that's why you can sing this music. And I was like, that's not why. <laughs> you know, that's not at all. I was not at all raised in like an African-American family culture. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, the co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Cybersecurity is something of an oxymoron, and it's frightening when you realize just how vulnerable we all are. The story about alleged Chinese cyber attacks on the New York Times is a case in point. The Times published a front-page story today that Chinese hackers repeatedly infiltrated its systems over four months this past fall. It coincided with the Times investigation into the billions of dollars amassed by the family of Chinese premier Wen Jiabao. Miko Hupinen is chief research officer for the cybersecurity company F-Secure in Helsinki. So in a nutshell, Miko, what happened at the New York Times? We call these targeted attacks, sometimes labeled as APT attacks, which means advanced persistent threat. And this means these are attacks which are not trying to hit just anybody. The attack from the very beginning and the malware and the backdoors used in the attack were created just to target one single target, in this case, New York Times. And it could have been a lot worse, according to the Times chief information officer. Uh, They could have wreaked havoc. Apparently, uh, they didn't. What were they after? They were after information. We believe they were trying to figure out where the information was leaking from China to these journalists. Basically, they were trying to find their contacts. If the attackers would have been interested in in money, um, they could have gone after the credit card information of New York Times subscribers or or information like that. Or if they wanted to cause chaos, they could have tried to prevent New York Times from getting published. But that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to get information. Right. And what did they get? Well, we don't know all the details, and it's it's possible New York Times doesn't know either. They were in for several months. We know that they gained access to every single password of the New York Times journalists, as well as access to home computers of over 50 New York Times journalists. So they had really wide-ranging access to critical information. Now, China has denied involvement. Why is the New York Times sure it was the Chinese military? Does that kind of fit with your research? Well, they say it's the Chinese and they implicate the Chinese intelligence or Chinese military, but they, they can't really apparently prove that. And and really, who else would have been um, interested in similar way and, and, and when the timing fits so well with the news that they published? Um, and because we know China has been doing similar attacks in the past, for example, they attacked Google a little over two years ago. So when you just add them together, it, it's the most likely attacker. So the New York Times and its cybersecurity company, Mondiant, played a pretty cool and didn't shut down everything immediately. Is that what you would have done? Yes, that's that's pretty much that, that's what we hope to gain. In many cases where there's a breach and the target learns that they've been breached, especially the top management typically just wants everybody to be kicked out and get rid of the hackers and save us. That's not the most beneficial thing to do. If, if you can isolate them and if you can monitor what they're trying to do, you can learn a lot. And in many cases, if you just blindly try to throw them away, they might have left some backdoor somewhere that you can't find and they'll get back in. What do you mean by a backdoor? Backdoor as in a service running on some of the servers of the organization which was hit so that the outsiders can get back in. So basically, you, you you believe you know how they got in and you close that hole. But as soon as they got in, originally they created a new hole somewhere else, which you might not be aware of. How unusual is this kind of attack on a news organization? News organizations are not the prime target. Uh, when we look at similar attacks, which we have been analyzing since almost since 2005, so as a phenomenon, targeted attacks are, are not a new thing, 
but most of the targets that we we see getting hit by attacks like these are typically um, defense contractors or government entities, politicians, um, parliaments, or embassies, and then also human rights organizations and freedom of speech organizations, especially groups which support different kind of minorities inside China. And that's once again one of the reasons why China gets blamed for attacks like this. Cybersecurity expert Mikko Hupinen, thank you very much. Thank you. Cybersecurity has long been a big topic of debate in Washington. Recently, Defense Secretary Leon Panetta made a speech warning that the U.S. was facing the possibility of a cyber Pearl Harbor. And last week, the Pentagon announced that its cyber command would be expanding from 900 to nearly 4,000 people. That's at a time when the Pentagon is making cuts. But the U.S. has a long way to go. That's according to Jim Lewis. He's director of the Technology and Public Policy Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Panetta speech that you referred to in October was very interesting. It came at the end of a a three-year debate over how the U.S. should use its military capabilities in cyberspace. And Panetta put out what I think was like a preemptive policy. He said, if the U.S. discovers an imminent cyber attack that threatens significant harm or could cost American lives, it will strike first. Now, we've heard these reports of possible U.S. involvement in viruses like Stuxnet, which uh, attacked nuclear facilities in Iran. Can you elaborate more on on what the U.S. has been doing? This is a a really new field, right? And the U.S. began uh, toying with uh, cyber warfare probably almost 20 years ago, but the really destructive capabilities weren't developed. So really, the first example would be 2007, where you saw at Idaho National Labs, a test that showed that you could use software commands sent over the internet to cause physical destruction. In this case, it was a room-sized electric generator that was commanded to basically shake itself to pieces. Was that employed? I don't know, but it certainly, you know, everyone has leapt to the conclusion that Stuxnet looks an awful lot like the thing that was tested at Idaho National Labs. Stuxnet is maybe the leading example of uh, an internet attack, a cyber attack. So on the defensive side, how is the the United States securing this country from further cyber attacks? We're actually not that secure. And one of the big disappointments last year was the uh, failure of legislation in the Congress that would have made uh, critical infrastructure a little more secure. Are you optimistic for the future? Uh, No. Um, Well, yes, in the long term. I I think there might be some unhappy chapters in the interim. This is a new technology, and if you look in the past when we've seen things like airplanes or cars or steamboats, it takes us uh, almost a generation to figure out how to use them safely. And um, I'm afraid that we might have to have a damaging attack. Right. You're talking about that unhappy chapter before we get to things kind of smoothing out. So describe kind of what you see as a possible scenario. You know, Iran's activities in the last uh, few months have been really interesting, and U.S. government officials seem to be confident that Iran did two things. The first thing they did was they launched a massive attack against leading U.S. banks. The second thing they did simultaneously was wipe the data from 30,000 computers at the big oil company Saudi Aramco. And I don't think it was a coincidence that these things happened at the same time I think the Iranians were doing a large-scale exercise. How would the U.S. react? Did their new weapon work? Mm. 
The thing that I thought was funny is after those attacks, Secretary Panetta gave his October speech where he basically said the U.S. will act preemptively. And for a little while after that speech, Iranian activity declined. And then a couple of weeks later, it was back up. The problem for us now is how do we signal countries like Iran or China that this is really a serious matter, that it could lead to a bigger conflict? And that's what I'm afraid of is the Iranians will decide they're mad at Israel for bombing some convoy in Syria. Maybe they'll do something damaging in the U.S. And that's what we want to avoid. Why do you think the U.S. is kind of moving along so cautiously with these rules of engagement? Technically, before you use a weapon, you're supposed to know whether it puts civilians at risk, whether there's overriding military necessity, whether the damage you're about to cause is proportional to the attack you've experienced. Those are difficult questions to answer with cyber weapons because we just don't have the experience. There's a new thing in New Jersey, I think, called Cyber City. It's all the cyber stuff that would go with a regular city. You can open drawbridges. You can make the traffic lights turn red or green. We can practice on Cyber City to see if we launch this kind of attack in response to a newspaper hack, what are the results? Do we accidentally turn off a hospital? Do we cause damage that we wouldn't want to cause? People are actually going through these processes of, you know, raising drawbridges and turning off lights. Wild. Several countries are testing cyber weapons. The U.S. is one of them. Um, Actually, we're a little more open about it. The other guys have these weapons, too. They just won't admit it. Jim Lewis with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks a lot. Now, to answer our geo-quiz, close your eyes. That's what you have to do to see a theater production going on in the Canadian city of Vancouver, the answer to the quiz today. Vancouver is hosting the PUSH International Performing Arts Festival, and one of the performances requires audience members to be blindfolded and led around the city by a volunteer guide. It's called Do You See What I Mean? Marsha Lederman is an arts correspondent for the Globe and Mail newspaper, and she's taken this blindfolded tour of Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver is a beautiful place, having visited only once. Marsha, why walk around it blindfolded? It is a beautiful place. And if you're a tourist coming for the first time, I do not recommend this as the way you tour the city. However, if you live here, it turns you into a sort of tourist in your own city. So how does a tour work? Where do you start? You go into a very small gallery in Vancouver's Chinatown. You meet uh, one of the producers who talks to you about what's going to happen. They lead you into a back room. They blindfold you. Then you meet your guide. So you have not set eyes upon the person who is going to lead you through the city for two and a half hours. Uh, And she gave me some instructions about how it was going to work. And then we were off. Did you trust your guide to kind of like not walk you into lampposts and uh, mailboxes and stuff? Well, you've never met this person, right? That that was the amazing thing. So how could I have trust in her? But then again, what choice did I have? So I had to sort of trust her. And I'll tell you, throughout the two and a half, three hours, I came to rely on her so heavily and to trust her so much. I felt extreme emotions about her. That was an eye-opening experience, uh, spending that much time one-on-one with someone I didn't know. Yeah, that's kind uh, of an unexpected part of this. Completely unexpected. Completely. I thought it was going to be a cool thing to do. Walk around Vancouver blindfolded, feel the vulnerability of it all. But I didn't realize how it would affect me on so many different levels. I gather at one point during the tour, your guide handed you off to another guide. Yes, this was 
really something. The fourth stop, uh, at, by this point, you are re- so reliant on your guide. And my guide's name was Anna. She took me into a room. She told me to take off my coat. And she said, I'm going to leave you here with somebody else. This is Johnny. <laughs> so right away, I was nervous because I was very dependent upon her. It, and by the way, she- are you the only one on this tour? Or are there other people with you? There are several tours happening at once, but it's one-on-one. Gotcha. So okay. they they stagger the times, I think, every 10 minutes. So it was just Anna and me. And then Anna handed me off to Johnny, who told me that he was blind. He'd been blind since the age of three, I found out, because I asked him some questions. So, you know, here you have literally the blind leading the blind, which was amazing. He showed me some of the methods he uses to get around and, and figure out how to navigate through spaces. And in this case, the space turned out to be a swimming pool and hot tub area. I know because he had me feel the water. And then he showed me how he uses the cane to determine how deep the water is. Wow. And it sounds so matter of fact as I'm telling it to you now, but it was really emotional for me. I, I don't know why I'm still processing it, but it felt uh, it was kind of a beautiful connection that we had. I mean, it just sounds like such an amazing experience, but d- did you feel that it was art? I mean, what was the point of the piece? That's the the overwhelming question I had as someone who writes about art and the arts, but it was the very last stop, I think, that really made it art. You have no idea what's about to happen to you. Again, Anna handed me off to someone who introduced himself as Martin. And he took me around and you're hearing kind of strange sounds around you. You don't know if it's a sweeping or running. You can't figure it out. And as you follow him, you start running and going forwards and backwards and going down on the floor. And you realize that you're dancing and it's not just you. There must be other pairs around you because you're hearing them. And you know that anyone who's seeing it is seeing that this is, in fact, a dance. And uh, this man, Martin, he's one of the choreographers. Is he one of the creators of the piece? In, indeed. Martin Chaput, I found out later, he is one of the two men, choreographer artists who created this work. They've done it in several other cities uh, around the world. So, Marcia, tell us what you kind of virtually saw, if you will, for the first time in, in your home city. You know, I felt I had an appreciation for it. I'm really looking around me. I'm really drinking Mm. it in. And no matter where you live, it can be beautiful Vancouver. It can be not so beautiful wherever. I think that it, it does make you appreciate what's around you on a whole other level. Well, Marcia, we'll have a link to your Globe and Mail article, your account of Walking Blind in Vancouver. That'll be at theworld.org. Marcia Lederman, an arts correspondent for the Globe and Mail newspaper. Thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for asking. Before we go to the break, here's an update on a story from a few weeks back. Iceland has strict rules on what you can name a baby, remember? There are about 2,000 approved names for girls and 2,000 for boys. If a name isn't on the list, you have to petition a special committee. Names like Carolina and Krista aren't allowed, for example, because the letter C isn't part of the Icelandic alphabet. The name Blair, which means light breeze, isn't kosher either, at least not for girls. But that's what Blair Björksdotter's parents named her and what they've called her for 15 years. In official records, though, she's been known as Girl. Well, now, after taking the committee to court, Blair is officially Blair. Yay. Earlier this month, I spoke with Sven Gudmarsson of the Icelandic National Broadcast Service. Nobody has uh, tried to take this uh, to court to, to challenge the, the decision of the, of the naming board. 
So this is a landmark case. But it's also an odd case. Goodmarsen says other women have been allowed to use the name Blyer. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. And now a story about a novel that's been variously called great, unreadable, and untranslatable. It may be all of those. It may be none of them. But right now, as the world's Leo Hornack reports, it's a literary sensation in China. Well, you know, don't you can it or haven't I told you, every telling has a tailing, and that's the he and the she of it. Look, look. You're listening to one of the best-known novels of the 20th century, Finnegan's Wake, read by its author, James Joyce. Throughout the book, the language is so dense and complicated, translating it into another language might seem an impossible task. Oh, my back, my back, my back. I'd want to go to Not every work of literature is destined for the bestseller lists, but recently, Joyce's masterpiece has been doing very well indeed, in Chinese. Okay, shall I begin? Okay. Copies of the first translation of Finnegan's Wake, available in mainland China, have sold out. Books in translation are often popular in China, but they tend to be global bestsellers like uh, Harry Potter. So why has a text from pre-war Europe proved such a hit, particularly one which has a reputation for being almost incomprehensible even in its own language? Song Rong Dai has spent eight years working on the translation. I realized that Finnegan's Wake is a very great book, and that this book can change the idea of Chinese reader. And Song Rong Dai says that Chinese readers can learn a lot from Joyce's experimental novel. Finnegan's Wake is a book of freedom. I do not only mean the political freedom, for example, Joyce will create new words, transcend the social constraints. The making a new world shows Joyce's disobedience and refuse of the society. That creating of new words and perhaps rejection of society is one of the things that's made Finnegan's Wake so notorious and so infuriating. Almost every line is alive with puns, filthy double entendres, ancient Dublin slang and quotes from other authors. Is it even possible to convey any of this in a translation? Michelle Hooks is a professor of Chinese at the University of London. Well, it's possible and it's been done. Most of his work has been translated. Is it more difficult to translate a work of literature like Finnegan's Wake than any other piece of literature? Yeah, I would say so. I think I was just uh, reading online. It took the German translator 30 years and the French translator 18 years or the other way around. But it's, it's really hard. He just creates a language of his own. If it isn't exactly a light read, there could be many reasons why Finnegan's Wake has proved a hit in China. After all, there can be many reasons for buying a book. You know, some people are saying, well, the people are just buying that because it's such a, an acknowledged masterpiece of Western literature. They just want to have it on their coffee table. And, you know, how many people are actually going to read it? I will frankly admit that I own a copy of Finnegan's Wake that I haven't finished either, but I just felt I had to own it. For the translator, Song Rong Dai, Finnegan's Wake contains a much more personal message based on the spelling of her name in English. My name, Cong Rong, will be written as C-O-N-G and R-O-N-G on page 167. 
you can find the CONG. And then after several lines, you can find our NG. Wow. He, he knew someday I will translate this book. Song Long Dai intends to keep translating more of Joyce's works. And who knows what messages are still buried in these pages. For The World, I'm Leo Hornack. And I'll tie my butcher's apron here. It's suity yet the strollers For today's global hit, straight ahead, American jazz, from a singer who's taken a few turns in the road to get there. Here's The World's Alex Galifant. I didn't know what time it was Then I met you Oh, what a lovely time it was How sublime it was too That's Cecile McLaurin-Salvant. As you can hear, she operates very much within jazz standard territory. I Didn't Know What Time It Was is a classic by Rogers and Hart. And Salvant has a classic jazz voice. She's got what someone once told me every jazz singer needs, a voice with a core of steel wrapped up in soft cotton wool. In fact, when you listen to Salvant perform, it sounds like she grew up singing this kind of stuff. When I hear all these people talking about how jazz is a very American art form and it's very much of our people, those are all things that are true. But I really started singing and performing and and doing gigs when I was in France. Salvant headed to music conservatory there after high school. She was born and raised in Miami. She went to France planning to study classical singing. But on a whim, she met up with the school's jazz teacher, and he set her on a different path. As American as it is, I really started singing and really learning about the music from French people. Times have changed, and we've often rewound the clock. The French, it should be said, are reverent when it comes to jazz. From the moment the music reached Paris, it was seen as a refined, avant-garde art form. And there was an assumption in France that Salvant was part of a storied lineage. In France, I used to be told, well, since you're black and you're American, that's why you can sing this music. And I was like, that's not why, (laughs) you know, that's not at all. I was not at all raised in like an African-American family culture. My mom is French, my dad is Haitian, and my mom is French, Guadalupian. And in Miami, on top of that, we had more of like a Caribbean vibe, but not only. I mean, it was a lot of of different things. Cecile McLaurin-Salvant recorded her first album when she was 19. Now 23, she's about to release a second, titled Woman Child. And whether it's French people expecting that she be all African-American, or Americans expecting her to sound like a Haitian-French-Caribbean hybrid, it's an opportunity to meet or challenge those expectations. Which is good. I'm, I'm going to take advantage of it, you know. In recent performances, she's used her jazz outsider license to explore elements of the music's history, elements that are often quietly put away at the back of the closet. Valida Snow used to sing a song called You Bring Out the Savage in Me. How do you, how do you sing that? You're black in the 30s. People expect that. It's, I mean, to me, it's just like, wow. On Woman Child, there'll also be a song with music by Salvant herself, set to a poem in French by the Haitian writer Ida Faubert. It translates as, My forehead hidden on your lap. Le front caché 
sur tes genoux J'ai sangloté toute ma peine For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. Cecile McLaurin Salvant performs at Lincoln Center in New York this Saturday. We have details at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.